The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's open our Bibles now, if you would please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Our series is Living in the Light of Christ's Return, and we're discussing the Christian life and what that life should look like as we wait on Jesus to come back to this earth. We know there are many, in fact, all Christians that have died from the first century until now, all died before Christ's return. And we might think because of this that the second coming is not really all that important because... If history is an indication, um, we're also going to die before Christ comes. So why should we be so concerned about the coming of Jesus Christ? And we wonder why Bible authors like Paul and Peter and John would build a framework of Christian doctrine and Christian living based upon this singular event that Christ is going to return. Why wouldn't they just tell us, how we are to live until we die, and then we'll meet Christ, instead of telling us there is a certain way that we should live to meet Christ in his return. And it's because the return of Christ is our greatest motivator. Christ's return should inform and motivate every positive work that we do. It should restrain us from every evil work that we can do. And when we're saved, God puts this hope in our hearts, then we're not skeptics about it. We believe every word and every promise that is written in God's word. And so we do expect that Christ will return. Peter wrote that skeptics are as old as Noah, that Noah preached that a flood would come. He said it's going to consume the earth. The wrath of God will come and the judgment of God will fall upon this wicked generation, Noah said. But... God never told Noah when that was going to happen. The people that he preached to thought that he was crazy, that he would build a massive boat far away from any source of water that could float it. But he kept going out day after day and kept working on that boat. And they mocked him and they criticized his faith. And they said, Noah, we're not worried about this. We're not worried about what you preach. Tomorrow is going to be just like today. Nothing is going to happen. And they refused to repent at Noah's preaching. And so you wonder, what is it that made Noah different? What made him so different? It was his faith. It was his steadfast belief in what God told him. And that drove him every day to go out there and work on that boat. He knew the judgment of God was coming. And he knew that he needed to be prepared and that his faith would be vindicated. And God puts that same hope in our hearts. Faith is needed because of things that we can't see. And if your faith is in God, and if your faith is in His Holy Word, and the Word says that Christ will return, and that He could return today, that might happen before you die, then you believe it. And you work for it. And you live for it. Because you want to be pleasing when Christ returns. Hope is this great motivator that we have to be prepared as Noah was prepared. And hope drives our faithfulness. And it's our hope in Christ that keeps driving us onward. So that we don't live to die. We live 
to live. And I mean that we live to see Christ come in our lifetime and realize that Christ will come before we need to die. Immediately when he comes, we'll be transformed. We'll hear the voice of the archangel. We'll be caught up, as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, to be with Christ and to meet him in the air. Now this is Paul's purpose for this Thessalonian letter. The church was persecuted. Following Christ was difficult. Holding on was far more difficult for Christians living in the first century in the Roman Empire than it is for us as Christians today. For more than three centuries, before America even became a nation, before the United States was even formed, this place was a a place for a respite for persecuted people, for persecuted Christians. And the Christian faith has thrived here in our country with freedom of conscience. And while Christians across the world today... And through that time, we're being tortured and killed for faith in Christ. We as Americans have watched and we thank God and we prayed to God that it's them, not us. And in many parts of the world, there is this great difficulty of preaching the gospel that as soon as it's found out that you are a believer in Christ, believers are hunted down and killed. But by the grace of God, we've not faced that. But I do think that we're closer to the edge of a great turning point in America. Our religious freedoms are eroding. The promoters of tolerance are the most intolerant of us as God's people. And so we may soon face the anguish that others experienced trying to live for Christ in a very hostile environment. And I have to ask each of us here today, if we don't live for Christ now, If we don't live for him now while we have the freedom, what are we going to do when those freedoms are taken away? Now you remember that Paul spent only a brief time in Thessalonica. This was his second missionary journey and he was there in that city for only three weeks before he was driven out by a hostile mob. And Paul had to leave and so he didn't know how the church was doing. He didn't know if persecution had stamped them out, if they were squashed under the suffering that they endured. And so he sent Timothy to check things out and to bring back to him a report on their spiritual condition. And Timothy came back with a report and he said, these people are still holding on. These people are still faithful, but they have questions. They're they're struggling with imperfect understanding of Christ's return. They're still working. They're still out there witnessing. But there's a growing undertow in Thessalonica. And they're beginning, to, they're beginning to ask, is faith real? Are we actually saved? Will Christ return to take us or has he abandoned us? And thankfully, the apostle had answers for it. He was no stranger to their doubts and fears. He knew better that the knowledge of Christ's doctrines would strengthen them to endurance. And this is something that God's Word always does. If you're determined that you will learn more about Christ, your knowledge of Christ will take you through the toughest times. It will take you through times when your faith is weak, and in the end, you will come out victorious. Could they know that they were saved? That's the question that's before us. Can they know that they are true believers in Christ? Will Christ take them? And the answer is yes, they can know. And so in this first chapter, Paul briefly gives proofs of their profession. He heard what they did. He saw the results. 
And that convinced him they were true believers. Now his job is to show them how they can know. And in this text, he shows us how he evaluated their faith. And there's a lesson for us and what we're to look for in our lives to show that we are true professors of faith and we're not just mere pretenders. So this is a, a message about assurance, that we need assurance of our salvation to be contented Christians, especially in those times when we think that God is not near. In those times when we think that God has abandoned us, we need assurance that we are truly in the faith. And then we'll know that God never will abandon us. So we look at this text, the First Thessalonians 1. I want to begin reading at verse number 4, where the apostle says, Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Doubt is not an uncommon feeling for Christians. Jesus had much to say about doubt. And this is because his disciples were prone to doubt. His crucifixion was soon coming. Jesus knew that when it happened, his disciples would begin to wonder, is he the true Messiah? Is he really the one who will come and set up a kingdom? Is he really the one that we've been expecting? And so they had their times of doubt. And some of God's greatest servants down throughout history... So some that we consider to be giants of the faith have had their times of doubt. And so if you've ever felt that way, if you've ever thought as a Christian that you're not really very sure of your salvation, you're not alone. Some of the greatest Christians have had doubts. And that's not to say that they were defeated by their doubts, but they learned to, to overcome that. And they looked into the Word of God and they looked at their own experience and they knew that their faith was real in the Lord. I've had times when, when I've questioned, what, what if this isn't real? What if what I'm doing here does not amount to really anything? What if faith is just a construct of the mind and all that I'm doing is looking for some reason to find happiness? Does it really make a difference what I believe? And I thank God that those times are only momentary. The Lord doesn't let doubt overcome me. And quite frankly, and I hope that you take this in the right way, that I know too much. And I have learned too much and I have experienced too much not to know that what I believe is real. Even more real than me standing before you today. I trust in God. My experience tells me to trust in God. I know that it's real. You see, what I've done is learn to look at the proof. And so I can evaluate my spiritual condition through knowledge of the Word. And I can see how God has ordered my steps. 
And if I had time today, I could take you on a spiritual journey that led me to this place and led me to this pulpit, and I can tell you it did not happen by chance. It is because God was there. God orders the steps. And one of the chief reasons that I encourage you to be diligent students of God's Word is because I know that the truth will bring you much assurance. And I know that the truth of the Holy Scriptures will set you free from your doubts. That it will set you free from the fears that you have. You need to know God's Word to know that you are truly in the faith. But nonetheless, I know that most Christians are not different than the Thessalonians. They're not much grounded in their faith. And their lives are this tumultuous sea of doubt. They wrestle with assurance of their salvation. And if you're in that number, I hope that what we learn from this passage in the next few weeks will help you. And even if you're not in doubt today, there, there is information here that will help you when Satan comes to stomp on you in your times of distress. And you can be sure, he will come. He knows when you're down. He knows when you're weak. And he will come. And when you're at that low spiritual ebb, you need to look back on the things that we're going to talk about. Satan knows that an unassured Christian is an unfaithful Christian. So we must be always assured of our salvation. Now the past four weeks of our study have been in the text of verse number 4 where Paul said, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. And you might think four sermons, that's plenty to uh, expend, to exhaust that theme. But we find ourselves right back at this doctrine again because Paul grounded their assurance and their salvation in the blessed act of the Almighty God that God had chosen them to salvation. Now, I don't intend for us to bury ourselves again in that doctrine, but I do need to list this as the first proof of our profession because out of this flows all of the basis of our assurance. And so what is it that Paul told them first about being assured of their salvation? Well, first he talks to them and says, you are chosen by God. These are people that are chosen by God. And so if Paul begins there, that's where we must begin. And he was convinced they were chosen and as we've discussed in previous messages, if our salvation is real, then our election must also be real. We know one the same way that we know the other. And so Paul said that the elect are appointed to obtain their salvation. And so when he sees that they have obtained this salvation, then he knows that they were chosen by God. Election is by God. We see that in verse number 4. So they know that they didn't become Christians simply because there was this man named Paul who wandered into their town one day and told them this very strange message. And they decided to believe. No, Paul would have them know that they are included in God's sovereign purpose. They believe because God had a plan for them. He elaborates more on that in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 when he says that God chose you from the beginning of the world or from the foundation of the world. So no, Paul didn't wander into Thessalonica on a whim. He was also chosen to go there. That God appointed his path to take the gospel to them. And we see that in the Macedonian call in Acts chapter 16. He was called to go there to preach the gospel and God led him there. The Holy Spirit changed his plan to God's plan. And so Paul took them the gospel. 
And this is the doctrine that is the ground of their assurance that he begins with God's choice. And God's choice is bigger than their choice. And so if you wonder, why do I believe? Why did I ever come to faith in Jesus Christ? Why am I different from other people in the world? Well, you can ground your assurance in this. Not in your feeble processes. Not in decisions that you make. Because you can make mistakes. And you can be swayed by emotions. And you can be gullible. And you can believe the wrong thing. And often the things that you believe are wrong. But if you made a choice to believe in God, and you believe in Him because God made that choice of you, then how could you not be assured that it's right? Did you believe because God enabled you? Did God give you faith? Or did you dig down deep in your sinful, depraved heart and you just mustered faith? One of those gives infallible assurance. The other gives no assurance at all. Now you'll notice that Paul doesn't offer us a theological explanation of the doctrine of election. He takes care of that in other places. But here he introduces it as the underlying support for their assurance. And so if you're going through tough times, remind yourself of this. What is the reason you believe? God chose you and he put it into your heart and God had one purpose in doing it. And that was to bring you to salvation. And folks, it is real. Now, I've always loved this doctrine as explained in the Philadelphia Confession of Faith. The confession was written much nearer to the time that American Baptists came to this country for freedom. And in this confession, it says that Christians often become discouraged and doubt their faith. And it says that there are some that have false hope. And there are people that deceive themselves. It says that at times faith may be shaken, and at times our faith may be diminished. And it says that Christians may grieve the Holy Spirit acting on their temptations to sin. But it also says that a true Christian will never be shaken enough that he is overcome and that he abandons his faith. And it says that we have infallible assurance that is founded upon the blood and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then it says that there are evidences of the Holy Spirit living in us. And it says that by the graces of the Holy Spirit, that this salvation will work out of us and it will keep our hearts humble and holy. And then it returns to the overarching reason that we persevere in our faith. And you know what it is? They said it is grounded into the decree of election. Now listen to this concluding statement in the article on perseverance. The perseverance of the saints depends not on their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father. And so when you doubt your salvation, go back and think what you know about God's nature and about His infallible purpose. You have been taught the Bible's doctrine of election. You were chosen to believe in God. And so what is there to doubt? Now secondly, Paul grounds the assurance of their salvation in the fact that they heard the truth. They heard the truth. Verse number 5. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. They heard the gospel, and the gospel is the word of truth. 
And they heard this gospel from an apostle of Jesus Christ, one who was authorized to preach that word. And the word that was preached was empowered by the Holy Spirit who made it effectual in them. Now, I I think it's very interesting how Paul had their conversion settled in his mind, not only by their perception of truth, but also how God impressed him as he preached to them. If Paul was only an orator, he might have given great philosophical arguments and convinced them with his powers of persuasion to become Christians. And many preachers are convinced of their powers of persuasion more so than the power of the Holy Spirit. They scarcely even need the Holy Spirit as they begin to tug on the heart by telling tear-jerking stories. Have you noticed there's not one example of that kind of appeal in the Scriptures? And I'm not saying that's wrong. We must preach what the Holy Spirit tells us to preach. But I find it quite peculiar that as often as that technique is used today, that's not ever used in the Scripture. And that may be an indication to us that there's more of human persuasion going on in invitations than there is of Holy Spirit work. Paul doesn't do that here. And he says it's it's not just words that are needed. Words fall on deaf ears and they have no power until they're energized by the Holy Spirit. But there's an indication in this verse that it was not just the fact of their belief that convinced Paul... It, would all, it was also the fire and the zeal and the compassion that he felt as he preached. A preacher knows this. There are times when we preach that we're certain that the Holy Spirit is moving in the message. And it may not be anything that I see going on in the congregation. It may not be because I see some look on your face. And it may not be because suddenly you decide to get up and run down the aisle and come up here and start confessing Christ. It's not necessary for feet to move, but folks, it is necessary that the heart be moved. Something must move in the heart. And I can't see the heart. I don't know the heart. But the Holy Spirit speaks to my heart, and He lets me know when He's moving your heart through the message. There are days that I preach that I don't feel good. I may be sick. I may be emotionally drained. I might just be plain tired because of the long days and nights that I have at home because of my wife's illness. But then I get into the pulpit and the Holy Spirit gives vitality. Why does the Spirit do that? Well, it's not mostly for me. It's for God's people. God provides the energy because He has a purpose for His people to hear the Word. And so the Holy Spirit will show Himself not with me pounding on this pulpit. And He shows Himself not with me speaking out in foreign tongues or unknown tongues. And he doesn't show it in me by causing me to walk over to that side of the stage and over to this side and then down there and step on the pews and walk down the aisles. God doesn't work in me that way, but I surely do know that God's working when we preach the message. I know that God works and the message surges through the preacher with the energy of the Spirit and he knows that God is working to bring people to repentance and faith. Does that make sense to you? That the Word and the Spirit are never separated in the conversion of the sinner. That Word is also in the preacher. Now you look at the end of verse 5. You see Paul says, you know what kind of men we were. You know how we lived among you. You know why we did it. You know that we did it for your sake. Do you see that? The people could see it in his life. Here is a man who lives the gospel of Christ. 
And whenever the Thessalonians witnessed the gospel to those around them, they told people about Christ, and they also told them where they got this message. Where do they hear it from? And they tell them the message came from a trustworthy source, that the man who preached this was God's man, because he was transformed himself by the message that he preached. And I hope that you've thought of that. For sure, the preacher is an imperfect man. I have my faults. I have my sins. I sin just as you do. Well, maybe not the way some of you do. But I do, I do sin. And why would you tend to believe anything that I have to say if my life was a train wreck? Could I tell you the Holy Spirit transforms and that He makes us new creatures in Christ when I pretty much look like an old creature? When I look like a stink bug that crawled out from under a rock? Now, I might be straying from the main point, but this is also in the text. That your assurance of salvation is also dependent upon whether you have the truth. And if the source of what you believe is the truth came from someone who's not credible, then how is the message credible? Paul will have something more to say about the integrity of the truth and more to say about the integrity of the messengers of truth. We see it in the second chapter. Where do they get assurance? Because they know Paul told them the truth. In the second chapter, verse 10, Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. And why would he mention that except the power of the gospel to change lives? And if it didn't change his, how could he tell them it would change theirs? Can you believe that Pepe Le Pew is no longer a skunk when you can still see the stripe? The perfume doesn't help, does it? Does anybody really understand that reference? All right, some of you do. Some of you are as old as me. Now, I'm sorry, but I think I do need to wander off a little bit to say my piece on this subject. What is going on today in the Christian world with preachers who say they are preaching the transforming power of the gospel of Christ and preaching a Holy Spirit who works effectually in those that believe, and yet they look like they have never been personally transformed? Have you seen the scandals in Christianity? Do you see how the world mocks us as Christians because there are leaders that are hypocrites? Why are people following preachers that are a moral mess? How is it that a guy like Jim Baker, who was put in prison for stealing money and then using that to pay for silence and a sex scandal, was thrown in federal prison for overselling timeshares to unsuspecting people and robbing them of their life savings, how is it that after all these years, I just read in the paper a few days ago, that he's back to selling timeshares to Christians. Who are these people that are that gullible? How is it that the president's spiritual advisor, Paula White, was involved in a sex scandal with Benny Hinn, and both of them are raking in millions of dollars in their ministries? How is it that the TBN false prophets can get people to send them $65 million to buy a jet? How does the president with his horrible moral failures rely on those to help him who have horrible moral failures? You can't do that. And that's the point. You can't. People follow these hucksters because there's no authority to call them into account. 
And so they can live in sin because their preachers live in sin. But none of that is a recipe for assurance. You need somebody that's changed. You need somebody that shows that there is a change happened in their heart before you're going to be assured that what you hear from them is the truth. And this, this is the reason the Scriptures are so demanding about the qualifications for leadership. There's an example that must be followed in word and deed because the assurance of the people that we minister to is at stake. Well, let's return to the text. There's no assurance for the people or the preacher if the power of the Holy Spirit is not in them. The evidence of truth is taught by the power of the message. The word spoken must have transformative power Or there's something wrong in that chain that brings it down from heaven to the earth to the people. What does the word accomplish in the lives of the people that it touches? So this is important. What is the evidence that what you hear is the truth? You know, I think back on those early years that I first taught the doctrines of grace. Would you have listened to one word that I said? Would you have considered anything that I said? Would you change your theological bent if you didn't trust me to be a moral example? Oh, God knows that His Word doesn't work when the Holy Spirit doesn't work. The package that the truth comes in is also important. And we've got to emphasize this. It is only the truth that will save. Paul knew that what they heard was the truth. Now, you have the TBN types on television. They know what they preach is lies. They're crafty liars. They're Satan's little cubs, lion cubs, waiting on... The next victim they can pounce on to deceive the preacher of a false gospel. That gospel will not save. But conversely, we listen to the word of assurance from the Apostle John in 1 John 2.27. He says, But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you. And you need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. The anointing that he is speaking of is the Holy Spirit. You abide in Christ. You will be assured because the Holy Spirit teaches you truth. He doesn't lie. The truth doesn't come from the mouth of liars. No lie is going to bring you into relationship with Jesus Christ. So I don't stand here to preach opinions. I'm here to preach the Bible. And what if I I say to you, if it's not in the Bible, then don't believe it. Take that with a grain of salt. But if it's backed up by the word, then you take it to your heart and you believe it. Because only the truth will save you and assure you. Now, some may say, oh, preacher, you ought not to mention names when you're in the pulpit. But I do, because I don't have any interest in being in the preacher network. I want to be in the gospel network, and I want to tell you the truth, and I want to tell you who to look out for who's not telling you the truth. Now, Paul puts that forward, then, as a proof of their salvation, that their profession is good because what they heard and professed was not a lie. It was the truth, and it is the truth that sanctifies Now, thirdly, they were chosen by God and they heard the truth. And thirdly, they believed the word. The truth that is told must be believed. Now, that's only too obvious. But we do need to break that down and show that belief was evidence of their profession. The truth is preached every Sunday from this pulpit and in many around the world. But there are people that walk out of churches as unbelievers all the while that truth is swirling around their heads. We're chosen by God 
And belief of the truth is evidence of our election because we were chosen to believe. And we've got to come back to that because those who don't believe are not chosen. Only the elect do believe. That's hard doctrine, but it's a necessary consequence. Years ago, one of my dad's professors wrote, It is a sad commentary on the utter depravity of human nature that so many, even of the professed people of God, are so fearful and so hateful with regard to the biblical doctrine of election. They insist that man must be free to choose for himself, but would deny, if they could, the same right to God. It is not man, but God, who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. So belief of the truth proved they were the elect and their profession was good. But as we know, there are many people who say that they believe. So is it belief alone that proved their election? Well, that's good enough for God. Belief in own is good enough for God because God is the one who gives faith. God knows they have faith. He knows they're believers because he's the one that gave it. He's the one who can see the heart. But we don't have that advantage. Our vantage point is only what we can observe. And so we connect belief with behavior. And those things are connected in this passage. There must be something to observe. There must be some evidence that's forthcoming that shows there is belief. So until we see something, election and truth are only theories for anyone who claims to be a Christian. Empirical evidence of the disposition of the heart is needed from the human side. The divine side already knows. I said God gave the faith. He already knows. But the human side can judge only by what it sees. Only by evidence that we can see. Now I understand we judge imperfectly. We can't see the heart as God sees it. We judge imperfectly. Yet nonetheless, the Bible teaches that we are to judge. And you say, no, that's not right. Didn't you read Matthew 7 verse 1? Which is probably the most misinterpreted scripture in all the Bible. In Matthew 7 verse 1, Jesus said, Judge not that ye be not judged. But do you know that very few care to read the rest of that passage that deciphers the meaning? Because Jesus taught there is a way that we can judge. That we are expected to judge. So that we never allow a person in the church. We never allow a pastor or a deacon to be selected. We never allow a worker to work until first we have judged. Until first we see the evidence of their salvation That God is working in their hearts, not until we can judge it to be there. So an evidence of the disposition of the heart is needed. And so the next evidence of profession moves us out of the doctrinal area into the practical. Election, truth, faith, all of that comes from God. But this this part, this, this, this passage will make it clear that even though God is at work in us to bring us to salvation, that salvation will produce the evidence... That in the elect, that it's there, that it has happened. So that first part focuses mostly and entirely upon what God has done. But the second part focuses on what the Thessalonians did. As one author said, genuine conversion must include both dimensions. God's gracious, eternal initiative in election and our response to the gospel message when we hear it preached. Now that's where we're going to stop today. I want you to understand this very clearly because we're often accused of believing something quite different. That people have the idea that we always speak of what God does and what we do really doesn't matter. 
Now, we do believe that regeneration is a sovereign, monergistic act of God. That simply means that God starts it by His power alone. That you have no input into the change that God will make in your heart. But we don't teach that the conversion of the sinner, in that conversion, that God works alone. Regeneration and conversion are separate doctrines. He, he enables, God enables a person to repentance and faith through regeneration and the act of the person in repenting and believing, that is his conversion. And so following that, then there's an evidentiary change that happens. And if it doesn't happen, then God's work was never there. God's not there. You see, God leaves footprints where he's been. And if God, as I said another time, has walked all over your heart, then his footprints will be there. When he has regenerated, his footprints can be seen. Next week, we're going to discuss the change that Paul makes in his approach to assurance. The divine side, that comes first, and now he'll move to the human side. What evidence is there that you are a Christian? What is the human side that shows that God is at work in your life? And I know for some of you, that will be joyous to step back into this and look at it and see the evidence in your own life from the human side. Yes, I am a believer in Christ. I can see it by what God has done in me. In fact, there is more said in the Bible about that side of it, about what you do, about the sanctification side where you are living for Christ. Much of the New Testament epistles are concerned with that sanctified life. And friends, you are the one who lives the sanctified life. And so there are some who will find joy to have it examined. But others will not find much joy because there isn't much reason for assurance. Sitting in a church pew is not reason for assurance because there are thousands of people sitting in church pews today that are professing but not possessing people. Christianity is much more than a church, a steeple, and a pew. How do you live in the light of Christ's return? And I'm going to ask you to evaluate honestly. How are you doing? It's far better for you to find out now that your faith isn't genuine because now you have an opportunity to change that. But if Christ comes and you're not a believer in Him, you'll have no opportunity to change it. Jesus made this frightening statement about His return. He says in Luke 18:8, When the Son of Man cometh, shall He find faith on the earth? The Lord knows that when He returns, there will be many who will say, We believe. But they're not true believers. Only the true believers will be lifted up to the skies to be with Christ. Are you in that number? You can know. You can be sure of it. You can know. If you have proof of your profession. Let's pray. Father, we come to you asking you to speak to our hearts. Give us the assurance that we need of our salvation. And Lord, if we should examine and find that it's not there, I pray, Lord, that your grace will come to us, that your Holy Spirit will speak to us and will give us faith to believe in you. Lord, for those of us who are Christians and desire to follow you, I just pray, Lord, you'd help us to live that sanctified life and that every day we'd live in the word so that we would bear out the proofs that we are true believers in you. I ask, Lord, that you would speak to hearts today, that you would drive the saved to be more faithful and to drive the lost to hear and receive the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ.
We know, Lord, you are in control of either way those things go. So, Lord, we put it all into your hands. We ask for your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.